Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Almost 200 countries, including the U.S., have now committed to preserving 30% of our planet's lands and oceans by 2030, an initiative known as 30 by 30. It won't be a matter of setting aside just any available land or water. We must also preserve the most important natural places to improve biodiversity, slow the effects of climate change, and increase access to green space for disadvantaged communities. California was the first state in the U.S. to commit to the 30 by 30 effort and is a leader in this global initiative. Jennifer Norris, Deputy Secretary for Biodiversity and Habitat at the California Natural Resources Agency, says that California is proving that conservation can be successful without slowing down the business of the world's fourth largest economy. Conservation happens in tandem with other activity. And if we think strategically about where we want to do our economic development and where are these really important places to protect, I think we can have both. And California has shown we can have both. Jennifer Norris tells Esri's David Gadsden why data science and high-tech maps are fundamental to achieving the objectives of the 30 by 30 initiative. Hello, Jan, and welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Thanks, David. I'm really excited to be here. Jen, when people talk about the state of California, oftentimes it's referred to as the great state of California. In what ways is California great when it comes to environmental stewardship or caring for nature? As you know, California has some of the most diverse biodiversity, landscapes, geography of really any place I've ever been. And I think that draws people in that love this kind of place and uh, love to experience the outdoors. You know, I grew up on the East Coast and uh, whenever people come here, they remark that everybody here is always outside doing something. You know, there's really this culture of just appreciating nature. And I think that has led to a really in an electorate that's really supportive of environmental protection and conservation. And, and we have some of the strongest environmental protection laws really anywhere on earth for clean air, clean water, um, and of course, conservation of our biodiversity. What are some examples of conservation-focused organizations and how do you work to advance these initiatives? Yeah, so we have, you know, two cabinet level agencies that protect the environment. We've got the Environmental Protection Agency, which is really focused on those um, sort of more chemistry-based uh, sciences like uh, air and water. Um, and then we've got the Natural Resources Agency where I work, which oversees all of our natural resources, which includes state parks, Department of Fish and Wildlife, water resources, as well as a suite of locally-based conservancies that are almost like local conservation organizations helping do projects in a particular place. We've got a dozen of those or so. And then the Wildlife Conservation Board, which is a resources-based entity that um, actually gives out grants to do conservation across the state. In 2020, Governor Newsom signed the Nature-Based Solutions Executive Order, which initiated the process to apply the objectives of the global 30 by 30 initiatives to California. Now that we're deep into that work, do you have any thoughts on your experience from the time it was signed to when the actual work began? We were really lucky to have people who said, hey, this is something cool that I want to be part of. Um, so Esri, we'll talk about that more, um, and some philanthropic funding that came forward and said, let's help you get this done. And so in about a year um, from the time of the executive order, year and a half, um, we put on 
17 public workshops across the state, uh, all on Zoom, sadly, because of, of COVID. Maybe that was a blessing in disguise because we were able to get really thousands of people to engage with us and help us figure out how we wanted to advance 30 by 30. How does conservation work in California? What are some of these incredible strategies that people are already using? What are some of the best ones that we want to pull together into this, into our approach? Um, and what do people need to be more effective at getting conservation done? So having that level of engagement, while it was like I said, a whirlwind was really incredibly valuable and allowed us to create this, what I call crowdsourced strategy for 30 by 30. Well, this is where our work with Esri came in. So I think you know that my background is actually in landscape ecology and I think in maps. And I have always wanted, it has always been my dream that we would have a state level map that allowed us to see where we have done work already, where we have conserved spaces and how those interact with our biodiversity hotspots, where we have rare plants, where we need wildlife corridors. Um, and working with Esri, we were able to do that, bring that data together along with projections for sea level rise and uh, future temperature. So we can really now in a spatial way uh, you know, bring together all the data that are out there in one space and start to game out what are the most important places to protect and how do they connect with the places that we already have. How do you democratize these geographic information systems or GIS tools for the broader community that needs to needs access to them? Well, I mean, that's that's what's so great about what we did, right, is that there's there's a very simple level of interacting with these maps, which is almost, you know, just you can just scroll down the screen. So my mother can do this, you know, the story map version, which just walks you through how conservation works in California, what our vision is for 30 by 30. And then there are maps that you can just play with. You can zoom around, zoom in, zoom out. Um, if you don't know anything about GIS, you can still interact with them. But then if you are someone who understands how to use GIS tools, you can actually do modeling within the system or take the data down and use them um, on your own platform. So we have sort of multiple levels of interaction with the information, hoping that we can get people to the modeling level. Um, but if they can't do that, then we've you know made the information available to all kinds of people. And I will say too, you know, part of our engagement since we finished the strategy is really about walking people through these systems and helping them understand how they can use them, uh, particularly our partners within state government, who've probably also always been dreaming about having a system like this, as well as our community partners who might want to use it to identify conservation opportunities in their own backyard. So you've been talking about getting data organized, providing visualizations, and engaging communities as steps to kickstart this work. What am I missing in your process and what comes next? Our process, I felt like we were building the plane while we were flying it. I think I use that analogy a lot. We were, we were trying all kinds of ways to engage the public and engage with conservation partners across the state. You know, one thing I didn't mention that we did that I thought was really high value was setting up subject matter expert panels where people gave us sort of where they sort of wrestled with a problem and gave us some of their insights in a collective way. We were also taking, you know, public comment sort of one offs, but then we also brought groups together to really wrestle with questions that we were interested in. 
how will we advance equity as we as we do 30 by 30? How do we make sure we get the most biodiverse places? What does it even mean? What does conservation mean? How do you define that? So we we brought together these um, panels of of folks that gave us a lot of really good insights that we could draw from as well. But I will say, I think the most valuable thing really is is interacting with the people on the ground because at the end of the day, they're the ones that are going to help you get the work done, and that's where you have to start. It can't be a top level, you know, coming from the state or the federal government. It has to be a collaborative process. And so our interest is in accelerating that work, finding the levers that we need to pull to make that happen more quickly and more effectively. So whether that's more funding or improving our permitting processes or helping us just get money out the door more effectively, that's what we're trying to do because we can't do it ourselves. We have 100 million acres in California and we need 6 million acres to reach our 30%. So we need everybody on board. So that's land trusts, local community, members, the tribes. We haven't talked about that yet, but there are lots of tribes that we're, are going to be working together. So lots of different entities out there. Let, let's dig in a bit to this participant community, this stakeholder community, and, and even the rights holders community, right? So you mentioned the work of, of Native American tribes in California. How, how did you lead that engagement process to be sure that you were being as inclusive as possible to these key groups? Well, with tribes, it was actually the first thing we did was uh, send letters to all California Native American tribes. Uh, I think there's over 230 of them in California, sent them letters, said, we're just getting started on this process. We really want your thoughts. And we ended up uh, meeting with 70 different tribes over the course of a of the year, um, some in several different settings. Many of them were official government to government consultations. Some were just uh, staff level conversations. And then we had listening sessions. So with tribes, we were very purposeful um, trying to make as many spaces and opportunities to hear from those partners. And then, as I mentioned, you know, with the other stakeholders, we had these sort of statewide level, you know, Zoom meetings, but then also uh, ones that were more focused on different geographies around the state, nine different regions that we sort of did a deeper dive uh, where we could hear from people about place. So we think a lot about 30 by 30 being about biodiversity. You know, the nature is under incredible pressure. We're losing many species at an incredible rate to extinction. Uh, but there's also a benefit to climate change and climate adaptation. Can you help, help us understand the relationship between conserving an area and maybe advancing these challenges around climate change? Yeah, I mean, there's there's sort of two parts. You know, one is just slowing the rate of climate change, which we need to do by um, emitting less carbon or sequestering more. And, you know, biologists know that carbon is the building block of life. So open, you know, lands that are undeveloped, uh, that are living with functional ecosystems, with all kinds of organisms, those are actually you know, processing carbon regularly, and they're stored in things like trees and wetlands and the ocean. So, you know, nature is is a true carbon uh, sequestration engine. And then, from the resilience perspective, um, you know, as the as the planet warms and as we get these more extreme storms and conditions and heat, you know, nature can help us be more resilient to those effects. So. Coastal wetlands can help us uh, deal with 
sea level rise and the kinds of storms we just had here in California. Trees and cities can help cool our buildings. Uh, so nature is also uh, an engine of resilience. As you mentioned, the world is changing uh, dramatically because of the, the pressure of climate change. How do you, in an informed way, conserve the places that are going to matter in the future? That is such a hard question, actually. And these maps we were talking about, these interactive maps, I mean, they, they are one piece of the puzzle. So, you know, thinking about what are these places going to look like in the future? How hot will they be? How, how will they be underwater? Uh, will, will the, you know, precipitation patterns change? So knowing that is a key piece of the puzzle. But then also thinking about just you know, how ecosystems might move and whether they can move. So building our conservation around connected landscapes uh, with the hope that maybe species that need to migrate can. Again, with nearly 200 countries now working on a 30 by 30 agenda, uh, what would your advice be since California is now several years uh, underway in this process? Well, one we've already talked about, you know, just the importance of community engagement and community involvement. You can't succeed without without your partners. And the other advice I think I'd give is to not be afraid to set an ambitious target conservation. And I think that's going to be specific to each place because it depends a little bit on, you know, the the tools you have to render a place, you know, durably protected. But I think we shouldn't be afraid to set a high bar for what counts as conserved and and really work toward that goal rather than you know have a definition that maybe is is weaker just to achieve a target so i think that's really important is to have an ambitious and strong definition and at the same time recognize that things that don't quite meet that standard are still really important to our goals of biodiversity protection. So if, you know, in our case in California, we want to see durably protected areas that are primarily managed for ecosystem function, but we recognize the importance of soil health, you know, on farms and biodiverse uh, hedgerows or green belts around cities that maybe don't have durable protections, but they really help us build that sort of landscape scale matrix of um, opportunity for species to thrive. The concept of 30 by 30 can be seen as controversial to industries that depend on natural resources. How do you mitigate that challenge and work through those trade-offs between economic development and what's needed to be more resilient from a conservation perspective? Well, this is where California's strong laws sort of come in to play, um, as well as our our history of good planning. So I think they both they both go together. You know, some of the most highly uh, vulnerable spaces are going to be some of the most highly protected from the perspective of laws. So probably they were not slated for development anyway, or if they were, we were going to work together with those folks to really make sure those places are protected. But broadly speaking, conservation happens in tandem with other activity. And if we think strategically about where we want to do our economic development and where are these really important places to protect, I think we can have both. And California has shown we can have both. You know, we're we're supposedly rounding out to be the fourth largest economy in the world, um, and we probably have a higher level of protection than anywhere on Earth. And 
an incredibly strong economy and and productive industry. So I think you can do both, but you need you need strategic planning, um, and then you got to really make sure you protect those special places. As you know, conservation has a troubling history when it comes to equity and rights. In the past, when protected areas were designated, it often led to evicting local or indigenous communities that in some cases have been living sustainably on those landscapes for time immemorial. How are you ensuring that you're advancing social equity concurrently with the protection of nature? So our strategy lays out, you know, three key objectives, biodiversity protection, climate action, and access for all to nature. Um, and then we have three core commitments as well. One is to advance equity, justice, diversity, and inclusion. The second is to really advance our tribal partnerships. And the third is to think about, you know, do this work in the context of, um, you know, protecting our economic prosperity and our food supply. So those undergird all of the actions that we identified. And then we have a suite of actions that are really specific to making sure that those needs um, are at the forefront of everything we do. So for example, um, within, as we think about our tribal work, you know, we really wanna look for opportunities to give land back when possible, develop co-management agreements, ensure that uh, access to cultural resources and cultural practices um, is not cut off and is advanced whenever possible. So we have a whole suite of um, principles that we're trying to advance. And, and as I said, they undergird everything we do. Simply put, 30 by 30 is an agenda to manage 30% of the state in a nature positive manner. What does that mean? Does it mean that these new areas are now strictly off limits or is there an opportunity to have some human activity in these places? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, in fact, you know, as we put out this definition, I think the initial reaction and when we was that that was our intent and we we worked really hard to make it clear that we that is not our intent. And in fact, there are many places across California that meet our definition where there's active management and economic activity. So a good example is in California's Central Valley. As as you may know, something like 95% of the wetlands in the Central Valley are gone. You know, this was a vast sort of inland swamp. <laughs> and um, some of the really rare species that have been impacted by that are actually those that live in invernal pools, which are pools that wet and dry, you know, with the seasons. And when they wet up, there are just some incredible um, endemic plants, uh, flowering plants that occur there and some shrimp, <laughs> some fairy shrimp. And those landscapes, in fact, rely on grazing. They rely on short grass. Uh, those species don't do well when the grass gets too high. So many of those vernal pools in California's Central Valley are in fact protected by ranchers who have conservation easements um, and they commit to managing their land in a particular way, but they're still grazing and, and you know, either it's dairy cows or beef cows, but they're, you know, we're working together to protect those places and economic activity is continuing. Jen, this has been a fascinating conversation. It's been amazing to watch this program develop. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. 
And thanks to Jennifer Norris for explaining how geospatial technology and community engagement are driving the success of 30 by 30. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.